wanted to begin this morning by talking about something you guys are probably very familiar with. You've probably heard it before, though you might not know it by this name. I want to talk about the duck test. The duck test. So, so I, I, I did a little bit of homework, very, very brief homework on the duck test, trying to figure out the actual origin of this test. Um, and, and honestly, people don't really seem to know. I actually found one origin account that I'm pretty sure is not true. I found one origin account that actually links it back to, um, to a, an inventor who created a robot duck. He created a robot duck, and then he tried to argue that that duck, that robot duck, though everyone knew it was a robot duck, he tried to argue that that robot duck was actually a real duck because it walked like a duck, it quacked like a duck, and it swam like a duck and everything else. So therefore, consequently, it was a real duck. Um, I, I'm fairly confident that that's not a true story, that that's not actually the origin of the duck test. But regardless of what the origin actually is, the, that test, the duck test, has found its way into philosophy, it's found its way into pop culture, even, uh, e- even in politics. The duck test has become well known. And again, most of you are probably familiar with it, aren't you? If it, if it looks like a duck, if it swims like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, well then, it's probably a duck right? And we all recognize that's not always the case. Certainly with a robotic duck, I mean, I guess it's really a robotic duck, but it's not actually a living organic duck. Um, So we recognize that it doesn't always stand firm, but there is kind of a common sense truth to it that typically plays out when we see things. If it looks like this, if it swims like this, if it sounds like this, then it probably is this. James this morning presents us with a sort of a duck test. James presents us with a sort of a duck test. We've been working our way through the book of James, looking at what faith looks like when it's lived out on a regular basis. We've titled the series Faith 24-7 because it's talking about what does faith do 24-7? How is it lived out? So this morning, we're going to continue on with the series. We're looking at the, uh, the second half of chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. And we're going to be looking specifically at the question, what is a living faith? What is a living faith? We're going to be looking at faith in action. And we'll break it up into two parts. We're going, to look, we're going to begin with two pictures of a dead faith, but then we'll look at two pictures of what this living faith actually looks like. Thankfully, James actually provides a lot of symmetry in this passage just for, uh, just for preaching purposes, I like to think. Let's, uh, let's begin by reading our passage together, and then, uh, then we'll pray. James 2.14. If you have your Bibles, please open there. James 2.14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous? for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. 
And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Let's pray. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would just be with us this morning. God, that you would be working powerfully through your word to convict our hearts and to draw us to yourself, Lord. We pray that your spirit would give us understanding of this passage and help us to rightly apply this passage to our lives, God, so that we can go forth this morning in the power of your spirit, boldly living out what you have called us to. God, you are glorious pray this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. So again, we've been making our way through the book of James and looking at what faith looks, looks like lived out in a 24-7 kind of basis. So we begin in verse 14 this morning with two questions, with two questions. James says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters? So again, he's talking to believers, right? What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? So James begins this section then by describing this strange sort of faith, this unfamiliar sort of faith that has no deeds we have in the NIV or or, or works some, some versions use. Now, deeds here has a positive connotation. There's a positive nuance to it. When it talks about deeds, this is talking about faith lived out. It's talking about what we've been looking at as we've gone through the previous weeks in James. So it was talking about things like last week when we talked about mercy and love, and the previous week when we talked about obedience to God, and the the week before that when we talked about perseverance, continuing to persevere on in the midst of trials. These are the sorts of deeds and works that James is talking about here. And James's assumed answer then is to, to what good is it if you have faith without work? His assumed answer is that it's useless, is that it's useless. Rich Mullins famously described it as it's as useless as a screen door on a submarine, right? The, what's the point? Why, why in the world would you do that? It's useless. Such a faith is no good, it doesn't, and it doesn't produce the desired results of the Christian life. It doesn't produce salvation. In fact, later on, he will describe such a faith as a dead faith. But wait a minute. I, 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 thought, I thought Paul said in Ephesians 2, 18, many of you have it memorized, for we are saved by grace through faith, right? So I, I thought we were saved by faith. But now James is saying that faith doesn't save? Are these two in conflict? No, I think what he's saying here is, and notice the words that he uses in this passage, he talks about such faith, such a faith. Or if you're using the ESV, he'll talk about that sort of faith. Or if you're looking at the New Living Version, it says that kind of faith. This is not the real sort of faith that's spoken about in Ephesians chapter 2. This is a different faith. This is a false faith. It's a sham. It's a fake Verse 17, again, describes it as a dead faith, right? 
why then? Why that, that, that's why we see in this passage that this um, imaginary individual only claims to have faith in verse 14. If this was a real faith, that word claims wouldn't be in there. It would just say the person who has faith, but it doesn't. It says the person who claims to have faith. You can almost hear James's sarcasm as he's talking about this, right? It's almost as though every time he says faith, he's using air quotes around faith as he's talking about it, right? This isn't a real sort of faith. This is a dead faith. It's an impoverished faith. It's a useless faith. It's a sham. James then provides us with our first picture to help us see better what this dead faith looks like in action. What what does this dead faith do? Verses 15 to 16 is the first picture. Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is that? What good is it? You see, in this example, the believer sees the need and even gives lip service to the need. He even acknowledges that there is a need, but doesn't actually take any actions. The response from the believer here in this verse, um, be warm and fed, um, that's a sort of a blessing that the believer is pronouncing on. It it might be similar, it might be similar to, to, to us today in our context saying, I'll pray for you, but with no actual intention of praying for you because it's just something we say sometimes, right? Saying, I'll pray for you, but then never actually doing anything. And certainly, certainly not going to the next step of actually attempting to meet those physical needs. It's, it's a charade of spirituality that's not rooted in anything real. There is no grit to this spirituality. Rather, it's a putrefaction of genuine faith. Right? Verse 17 then restates the truth that we saw back in 14. This sort of fabricated faith is dead. But then we hear from the hypothetical individual in verse 18. This is probably a sentiment that James is very familiar with. This is probably something that's spreading around the churches that he's writing into. His sentiment goes something along the lines of, You have faith, and I have deeds. As though, as though those two things can be separated from one another. You, this person has faith, but this person has deeds. Almost like they're, they're different gifts that have been given to one another. James responds to that sentiment. James responds to that false belief and says, Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. He argues that these two, faith and deeds, should be united to one another. Show me your counterfeit faith. Show me your counterfeit faith, and I'll show you the real deal by my works, because they give evidence to genuine faith. There's an old British expression, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. That's basically what what James is arguing here. The proof of the pudding is in the eating, meaning basically in the experience, in the experience of eating this, you find out what that pudding, what that substance is actually like, if it's actually any good. As you see the faith lived out, as you actually experience, you find out, is this actually a genuine faith? And just like with the pudding, the the, the pudding and the taste of it can't be separated. Those two things are conjoined. They're together. It'd be similar to a politician who runs under the, uh, the, the Republican or Democrat ticket. But once they get into office, they never actually, they never actually support any Republican issues. Right? They never actually support any Republican issues. It would raise the obvious questions. 
is this individual actually a Republican or not? You can't just claim a party and then not actually act according to those convictions, right? You can't do that. What do you call a Republican who never actually takes any Republican actions and never actually, never actually votes Republican, in fact, doesn't evidence any form of Republican belief? You call them not a Republican, right? And vice versa for a Democrat. Um, I actually, I had a friend at one point in time, I used to work in a coffee shop, um, this was a teenager. He, he came in one day, and in, in this particular coffee shop, in this context, it was very popular to be vegetarian for some reason. It was just, I, I didn't fit in. I like my meat. But, um, but it was a very popular thing. And so, so he came in with all kinds of pride and gusto and proclaimed, today I've been 80% vegetarian. And he was so excited and so proud of himself. And I said, what, what do you mean? You've been 80% vegetarian. He said, well, I ate donuts for breakfast, and then I ate, I ate a turkey sandwich for lunch. So, so that, was the, that was the 20% non-vegetarian. And then, and then I've just eaten chips and such for the rest of the day since then. But I, I had some carrots too. 80% vegetarian. What, what do you call an 80% vegetarian? Not a vegetarian, right? You can't be an 80% vegetarian. His confession didn't actually match his actions. James provides a second illustration just to show how absurd it would be to separate faith from deeds. You believe, verse 19, you believe that there is one God, good, even the demons believe that, and they shudder. James here provides the most extreme example I can possibly imagine. Even the demons believe. So this would include even Satan himself, right? That there is one God. Um, That first part of the verse is probably a reference to the most fundamental Jewish belief. They call it the the Jewish Shema. It comes out of Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jewish theology, Old Testament theology, is entirely built upon that supposition. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. It's the backbone of their Jewish belief. James is here saying, that's not enough. That's not enough. A simple affirmation of a creed is not the same thing as genuine faith. Notice, he's not saying that the statement is is wrong, and he's not saying that it's unimportant either. He's not saying that. No, absolutely. That's crucially important. He is saying that right belief alone, without any sort of religious conviction, without anything else along with it, without any kind of evidence, is a fabricated faith. And it's not enough. Not only do the demons believe, not only do the demons believe that truth, but at least they have an emotional response to it. They shudder. They shudder, right? So who are we if we claim this and we don't evidence anything? Can you really say that you believe that the Lord, your God, the Lord is one? And if you genuinely believe it, can you really say that and not not have some kind of response to it? If certainly the demons do. There's so many today that I feel have missed this reality. There's so many that believe themselves to be Christians because they have matter-of-factly believed in Jesus Christ, and they have matter-of-factly believed in God. There are so many that have misunderstood the gospel to think that it is only about intellectual assent to a few truths, 
So we embrace this truth and we store it away along with other truths like two plus two is four and the world is round, but they don't actually do anything to change your life. Is that, is that a genuine faith? James here is saying, no, that's a fabricated, that's a false, that's a fake faith. Even the demons believe that much. Um, had the opportunity to share Christ with an individual this week. Um, Beth Phillips and I did together. Um, we had an opportunity to share Christ this week. Um, as we were talking to, to the individual, he said, I, I believe in God. And we said, good. Even the demons believe that. Have you, have you actually trusted in God? Have you, have you actually given yourself over to him? Have you actually committed yourself to him? Have you, have you thrown yourself before the throne of God and hidden yourself in Christ? Because if not, you're only on par with the demons at this point. That's not a good par to set. Now, don't miss the problem here. The problem, the problem with this sort of fabricated faith, it's not the lack of works, right? James here isn't saying, okay, so, so make your faith secure, go out and do lots and lots and lots of works, and, and, and then you'll be good, right? It, this isn't a faith versus works sort of conversation. Um, it would be saying, I mean, the works, works, the lack of works is just a symptom of a genuine, of a real issue. And just like, just like with any medical condition, you don't treat the real issue just simply by treating the symptoms. It might make you feel better, but that's not how you actually get to the root of it, right? The, so the answer to the problem cannot be that these false faithers, these people who have a false faith, just need to do more right? If you have a dead tree in your backyard, you don't make that tree alive again by going and taping apples to it, right? That does nothing to improve the state of that tree. It only ruins good, perfectly good apples, and that's, that's a horrible thing to do, right? You don't fix that tree by taping good apples to it. No, you have to, you have to uproot the tree and plant a good tree in your yard. Then what does this new healthy tree look like? What does it look like? What is the genuine faith that James wants from his readers? What is it he wants them to live out? James provides us with two pictures, two pictures of this living faith. Looking at, uh, looking at, verses, looking at verse 20 through 21. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son on the altar? Right? James's first example is Abraham. Abraham, considered the father, considered the father of the Jewish people, the paradigm for what genuine faithfulness looked like. James holds him up. And again, consider the contrast here is between false faith that does not produce and genuine faith. Abraham's faith was a productive one. It was a productive one. There are many deeds that James could have pointed out in the life of Abraham to show the works of Abraham, right? There were many things he could have gone to, but instead he goes to one of the most obvious, to one of the most evident ones, the time when he was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac out of his commitment to the Lord, right? That becomes a paradigm for what good deeds and for what good works actually looks like. Now, if you're not familiar, this takes place in Genesis 22. Um, God, who has given all of these great promises to Abraham, comes to him and says, I want you to sacrifice your son. Abraham is willing. 
He is willing to do it. He doesn't understand. He doesn't know why. He, he doesn't want to, but he is willing to follow his God because he trusts him. So Abraham, out of obedience, goes to the point of having his hand raised over his son, but God shows up and stays his hand. Isaac survived the encounter, and Abraham had shown, Abraham had shown that his faith was a genuine faith, that he had trusted in God, and that he was willing to prioritize him first. Verse 23 reads, The scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. Abraham's faith was made manifest and vindicated based on his actions in chapter 22, in Genesis 22. But Abraham's faith preceded the events of that sacrifice. Abraham's faith preceded the events of that sacrifice. James here in verse 23 is quoting from Genesis 15, 6, when Abraham trusted God and his promises. This faith Back in, back in Genesis 15 then, this faith back in Genesis 15 was credited to Abraham as righteousness. And his faith in the character of God and his promises gave rise then to the events, to the actions, the deeds that took place in Genesis 22. Later, Abraham's righteousness, the result of his faith, manifested in deeds seven chapters later. And that deed vindicated it vindicated, it was the evidence of his gen- the genuineness of his faith back in chapter 15, right? Does that make sense? It gave proof that Abraham's faith had been genuine back then and that God's, um, and the, that God's crediting of righteousness had actually taken place. Verse 22 expresses this relationship between faith and works. You see, his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. The two, faith and deeds, they couldn't be separated. Rather, they were an organic whole. Just as Abraham's faith in Genesis 15 resulted in deed in 22, those deeds only serve to strengthen and to grow that faith, to make it a more robust, to make it a stronger, to make it a more established faith. Now, sometimes, we already touched on it previously, but sometimes people pit James against Paul here. Um, especially, especially in Paul's description of salvation by faith alone. And this comes to a head, especially in verse 24, where James states, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. I, I, I like the way the ESV translates it here. I'll, I'll read the ESV version. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. That reflects the Greek a little more closely. Um, Now, you probably heard what James just said there, and I even heard a little bit of murmuring, so you felt the weightiness of that. A person is justified by works and not by faith. Now, we read in Paul, in Romans 3, 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith. One is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So you see the, you see, you see the tension between these two passages, right? 
What's going on here? Is there a grudge match between James and Paul? Are are they throwing down? Is there conflict between them? Um, If so, honestly, in my mind, I've always pageant Paul to be a small individual. So my money's on James. Um, You know, son of a carpenter, he's he's got to have some grit to him, right? No, I I don't think there's a genuine conflict between them. Uh, So uh, let's go back to how to read your Bibles 101. What's one of the first things that we look for? One of the first things we look at when we're reading our Bibles is context. Context. What is the context of this passage? If I'm visiting England, if I'm visiting England and I get invited, I'm talking about World Cup, and I get invited to, to participate in a game of football, right, I don't need to go grab a helmet. I need shin guards, right? Right? If, I get, if I get invited to participate in a game of football, I'm not about to actually go out and play any American football. I'm about to go out and play soccer, right? The, the, the British, they just messed up the word. They don't actually know what it's called. No, that, that, that's obviously not the case. They're, they're right, and, and we're right. They were just working from a different dictionary to describe the same thing. Working from a di- different dictionary. And how do I know that? I know that based on my context, because they're also driving on the wrong side of the road. <laughs> right? I look at my context, and I'm able to discern this is why this is happening, and this is what their vocabulary actually means. It's the same here between James and Paul. They're using a different dictionary to address very different situations. But once we understand the context, we're able to see that the two, the two really fit together. The two are describing the same gospel. They're complementary sides of the same reality. So, so looking at the context first, Paul in Romans, he, he's writing to a heavily Jewish audience who is still attempting to earn their faith, to a, who's still attempting to earn their salvation by works of the law. Right? They're, they're hoping that their good deeds will save them. James, how, however, as we've seen, he's writing into the completely opposite context. He's writing to a crowd who has said, we don't need good works. We don't need good works. They're useless. We don't need them at all. The, they, they serve no role. And so they've ripped faith apart from works. Today, in a modern context, you might refer to this as easy believism. Right? They've separated those two things that were never intended to be separated. So they're writing into totally, totally separate, totally opposite contexts. The other thing is, again, the dictionary. They have some different language, though the language looks the same, and it's using the same words. The first thing, faith. We've already briefly addressed this, but when Paul uses the word faith, when Paul uses the word faith, he is referring to what happens when someone is, or he is um, always talking about a genuine faith. He is always talking about a genuine faith, which includes notions of belief and repentance and obedience and relationship with the Lord. That's what Paul is talking about when he's talking about faith. In fact, James usually means that when he's talking about faith also. I mean, if you just go back to previously in the chapter to 2.1, that's the sort of faith James is talking about there, right? It's only here in this chapter, in this section of James, is he talking about a air quotes faith. That's not a genuine faith. Also, the word justified, the word justified, or again, if you're looking at the NIV, it says considered righteous, but it's the same Greek word, justified. When Paul uses justified, he's referring to what happens when a person is saved, when a person comes to trust in Christ at the beginning of their spiritual life. They are credited as righteous and they are forgiven their sins. That's what Paul is talking about when he's talking about justified. And James agrees that that happens. 
He doesn't disagree with that also, but he's using justified in a slightly different way. He's talking about, he's talking about when we stand before the throne of God, the vindication that will come based on the evidence of our good works. Not that those good works actually save us, but that they evidence that that faith was real. Just like what we saw in Abraham, his works evidenced that it was a genuine faith. So, and Paul also agrees that that happens. He also affirms that there will be an end time judgment. He also believes that our works will give evidence to whether or not our faith was a genuine faith or not. That doesn't mean those works save us. It is a genuine faith that save us. Paul and James agree here. I think Martin Luther, the 16th century pastor, scholar, and reformer, I think he captures both truths well when he says, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. That captures both realities here. We are certainly saved by faith alone. But that faith, a genuine faith that actually saves us, it won't stay alone. Works naturally come out of a genuine faith. James provides a second picture. It's in verse 25. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? For those of you not familiar, the story of Rahab comes to us out of the book of Joshua, chapter 2. She's a prostitute living in the city of Jericho in the land of Canaan. So as the Israelites are beginning to come into the promised land, Jericho is kind of the first city that they come to. And her story is a remarkable one. It's a remarkable one, right? Because she is a female Gentile with a fairly rough reputation. And when she hears about God, when she hears about what he's done, when she hears about the way he has saved, rescued his people, the way that he has shown his loving affection over them, she, she allies with him and his people over her own people, even at her own personal risk, right? These spies that have come in to, to search out the land, she hides them. And not only does she hide them, but, but then she sent them along their way and, and misdirected those who were in hot pursuit. This eventually led to the takeover of Jericho by the Israelite people. She is an example. She is an example of faith evidencing itself in good works and deeds. She's distinct from Abraham, right? She's the total opposite side of the spectrum. I mean, Abraham, you have this famous patriarch who is the father of all Jews, who is the model many considered the model of faithfulness to God. But then you have Rahab on the other end of the spectrum. Again, a Gentile woman who was perpetually known for her sin, right? Two opposite sides. And yet her faith became an example of genuine faith because it's accompanied by action. Just a few principles I want to pull out about what a genuine faith looks like from these two illustrations. Number one, Faith is always accompanied by works. Faith is always accompanied by works. Faith isn't stagnant. It produces. Abraham and Rahab showed this in their obedience, even to the most extreme degrees of willingness to sacrifice self or their most beloved thing, right? Faith evidences itself, even to a radical degree. And why is it able to do that? Not because it makes sense. Not because it makes sense by any worldly standard, but 
because they worship a God who is worth it, because there is a God that they treasure far more than anything else. And so their faith is freed to live itself out in extravagant ways. Faith is always accompanied by works. Now, those works might not always be evident at every point in the Christian life, but there should be work and fruit in the Christian life. Number two, faith is not just intellectual assent. It's bigger than simply a belief that there is a God and that Jesus was real. It's bigger than that, but it's not less than that. It's not less than those beliefs. There is a genuine intellectual component to the Christian faith. There are beliefs that go along with being a Christian. So James is not attempting to to dissuade those. Rather, what he is saying is that those intellectual beliefs, those true beliefs, they bear fruit in action indeed, right? There should be an intellectual belief to the Christian life. It's not just only intellectual assent. Number three, uh, faith was not rooted in just anything, right? It's not a vague kind of abstract faith that things will turn out better in the long run. That's not, uh, that's not what you see in Abraham. That's not what you see in Rahab. In Abraham, he was about to sacrifice his son. I guarantee you he was not thinking, well, you know, things will turn out. He was putting his trust in an amazing God who had given him good promises, but he had no idea what was going to come out of this. This wasn't a vague kind of abstract. This was a faith in God and his goodness and his mercy and in what he would do, right? This is concrete. And at that point in time, they didn't know about Christ, right? Abraham and Rahab, they didn't know about Christ, that there was a Christ who was coming, right? The 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, all the promises of God are yes in Christ. So now we, we standing on this side of the cross, have even a more concrete understanding of the promises of God because they are fulfilled in Christ, Right? He is the one that we look toward. He is the one that we put our confidence in. He is the one that we trust. He is the promises of God. Number four, their faith was not perfect. Their faith was not perfect. This is especially evidenced in the life of Abraham. As you read after after Genesis chapter 15, you do not see a picture of Abraham that says, and he never sinned again. That's not what you see when you look at the life of Abraham. Rather, you see a broken saint. He showed his faith. He evidenced his faith in good works. But he was not consistent. He was faulty. He was frail, just like you and me. Right? That that is a genuine faith. That is what James wants from you. Me. This isn't a sinless faith, but it is a living faith that produces good works and obedience that flows out of our relationship to God through Christ. Christ is the vine. We are the branches. He is the one that nourishes us. And through him, we are able to flourish and to bear fruit. Again, this isn't a message of, I just need to work harder. I just need to try harder. If I just do this, this, and this, then my faith will be good because then you're just taping apples on trees again. That's not what James is saying. James is saying, you need to abide in Christ. He is the only means for bearing fruit. It is as you put your trust and your confidence in him. It's as you give your life over to him. It's as you show faith in him. Good works will come forth, right? 
And if we sever ourselves from that vine, if we are never really rooted in him, if our faith is a false faith, then we will wither. And on the last day, we will be burned. That is what Jesus tells us in John 15. Apart from him, we can do absolutely nothing. But in him, in him, we live and move and have, our be- and have our being. He is the ultimate union between works and deeds and genuine profession of faith. Everything that he said was true, he lived out before us. And because of that, he can be the perfect substitute for us. Because of that, he can be our savior because we can throw ourselves upon him. And it is out of his excess that we produce. Two final questions for you today then, or two applications for you. Number one, what sort of faith do you have? As we've been working our way through this passage, what sort of faith do you see as evidence in your real life? James is writing this because he wants to challenge his listeners. He wants to challenge them. Is this a real faith? Is your faith evidencing itself in good works? That doesn't mean you start working harder. That means, that means if your faith is not a real faith, you yoke yourself to the Savior. You trust in him. Maybe you haven't trusted Christ ever. Maybe, maybe the gospel is something that's entirely new to you. Then I invite you today. Put your trust in him and what he has accomplished through his death and his resurrection on your behalf. To put your confidence and your hope in him. To repent of your sins and to draw near to God. He is our only route for salvation. Maybe, maybe you have said a prayer at some point in time. I, I originally said the prayer when I was four. I became a Christian when I was 19. Because of passages like this passage that as I read it, I realized my faith was not a genuine faith. I I, I had given intellectual assent to Christ, but it wasn't genuine faith. I even did good works. I was living a fairly moral lifestyle, but I had no delight in our Savior. The demons looked upon him in shudder, and I looked upon him and was bored. That's not a genuine faith. What does your faith look like? Maybe you find yourself in a position very similar to where I was at. Yoke yourself to the Savior. Number two, press into Christ. For those of us who have trusted in Christ, who have a living faith, again, just as Abraham and Rahab, we know that our faith is not a perfect faith. We are growing. Yes, we have trusted, but we are continuing to grow in the Lord. And the only way that that happens is by continuing to press into Christ, continuing to trust in him, continuing to put our confidence in him, continuing to cultivate a relationship with him, abiding in him. This is what it looks like to press into him. This is a genuine, living, growing faith. And this is what James has called us to today. Regardless of the sort of faith you have, we all ultimately need the same thing. We need our Savior. We need our confidence and our hope to be cast upon him. He is the one who, if you you excuse it, he is the one who looks like a duck. He is the one who walks like a duck. He is the one who quacks like a duck. He is the perfect demonstration of a united confession, of a united profession about who he is, 
and deeds, and it is only to him that we can find our salvation. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, I thank you so much for this morning, God. I thank you for your word to us. I pray, Father, that you would just continue, Father, to unite us to your Son, that, you, that we would continue to press into him through the power of your Spirit. God, that you would get the glory in the midst of our transformation. Father, that you would produce fruit in us as we abide in him. Father, please just work mightily. Lord, I pray that your word would convict us, God, and use it to draw us near to you. Father, we pray this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Our benediction this morning comes out of Romans 16. Comes out of Romans 16. Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for, hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all things might believe and obey him to the only wise God, be glory forever and ever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Go in the grace and the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have a good week.